0: In 1969, Clint Murchison, Jr. broke ground on Texas Stadium, the new home of the Dallas Cowboys. What no one knew then was that Clint's vision for a modern stadium would change professional football forever. Texas Stadium was the first built with seat option bonds, now known as personal seat licenses. First with 178 luxury suites and eventually 400 the first stadium designed to create an entirely new stream of revenue. The innovations Clint designed into Texas Stadium have endured. Even the newest NFL stadiums in Arlington, Los Angeles and Las Vegas have DNA directly traceable to Texas Stadium.
1: Texas Stadium truly is, this is not overstating it, it truly is the prototype for the modern stadium. And when I
2: came down that tunnel and stepped out on that field, man, that's when it really hit me that you are now in pro football because you're in that stadium and it's
1: the home of the Dallas Cowboys. Texas Stadium was a huge game changer uh, for how the game was presented to the fans. Mr. Murgerson had
3: the idea of sheltering the fans and having the hole in the roof so that you had sheltered fans but actually had the feel of an open air stadium.
0: Clint was involved in every detail. The colors, materials, He wanted to see everything. He designed the stadium.
3: Clint Murkison was obviously cutting edge when he came up with selling seat options. Now they call them personal seat license in the NFL and they're really the fundamental basis of how stadiums are financed in terms of the private
1: contribution. There's a lot of different ways to sell premium products, but a lot of that thinking, you know, originated at Texas Stadium with Clint. In terms of the evolution of stadiums, uh, it was really it was really the first of its kind. One of the things we were fortunate is that, uh, you know, people like Clint Murkison
3: set the bar high.
0: Clint Murkison's vision for Texas Stadium redefined the idea of what an NFL stadium could be for the fans, for the players, and for the game.
2: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, your pal Tim here. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yes, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thanks for coming by. We appreciate it, as always. uh, By whatever means you have found us and or downloaded us and put us uh, in your earbuds, uh, we appreciate it tremendously. This week, we continue our journey. Uh, Not through any just, uh, uh, grand plan, but uh, we're going to another facility this week. We were in Atlanta last week talking about the old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. This week, we find ourselves due westward in the city of Irving, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, where the Texas Stadium story takes us. Yes, Texas Stadium was, in many respects, as that clip just sort of indicated, kind of the... Um, the prototype of the modern day NFL and or uh, professional sports stadium that we still uh, sort of see today. Personal seat licenses and uh, luxury sky boxes and suites and all kinds of other revenue streams, probably perhaps maybe even metastasizing into something even far more gargantuan than, uh, than this story uh, sort of alludes. But make no mistake, in the uh, late 60s, early 1970s, uh, the beginnings of that dynamic uh, began in earnest, and and by many accounts, Texas Stadium in Irving, Texas, the home of the Cowboys for and for many championship years of the Cowboys, uh, was the prototype for uh, what modern day NFL stadiums uh, became and uh, now still look like. And this week's guest, Burke Murkison. And Michael Granberry are here to discuss the amazing and interesting and convoluted and uh, just curious story of Texas Stadium. They are the uh, joint authors of the book, the new book just came out a couple of days ago called Hole in the Roof. The Dallas Cowboys, Clint Merkison Jr., that's uh, Burke's uh, father, and the stadium that changed American sports forever. It's published by Texas AM Press and a perfect excuse to talk about. Uh, A seminal uh, uh, place in the uh, firmament of the NFL, uh, professional football generally, professional sports, uh, stadium economics, uh, all of those kinds of things. Texas Stadium was, in many respects, revolutionary uh, in its uh, uh, boldness, uh, in its uh, embrace of places other than a downtown in a major city. Um, and you're going to hear in this story, it's, uh, it, it, there's a, a lot of prelude to it for sure. I mean, the stadium, uh, itself launched in, well, it, it broke ground in, uh, in early 1969 and opened, uh, about two years later in October of 71, uh, and lasted a fairly decently long time. I mean, it was kind of regular sort of timing, I guess, until, uh, 2008 when it, uh, uh closed down for good, um, but in between, the Dallas Cowboys, right, played from 71 till 2008. Uh, the uh, SMU Mustangs, before their death penalty in NCAA, uh, played there. And the Dallas Tornado of the North American Soccer League, lest we forget them, they were regular residents of Texas Stadium for a number of years uh, during the 70s and early 80s as well. But uh, those 38 uh, seasons of Dallas Cowboys football, for sure, probably the most memorable. But, you know, that the Cowboys just didn't, just, just didn't appear. Then, of course, uh, this is a story that go- dates all the way back to uh, the oft forgotten Dallas Texans of the NFL, the one year wonder, the one win Dallas Texans in 1952. Uh, it's a story that traverses George Preston Marshall, the um, uh, strangely uh, uh, positioned and remembered uh, NFL owner of the Washington uh, football team back in the day, and a certain theme song around that team. We'll talk about sort of how that made a difference in the origin story of the Dallas Cowboys, and also things like the Cotton Bowl, where both the AFL and the NFL were playing in in the 1960s, directly competitive for the first few years of the 60s. Remember our stories, our conversations uh, about uh, the great Lamar Hunt uh, and um, some of our uh, previous uh, episodes devoted to the AFL and uh, his frustrations with getting um, not only an NFL franchise and thus launching a, a, a league, but also trying to make a go out of it of uh, of Dallas as a market. Uh, and for a couple of years in the early 60s, Dallas was uh, had both the AFL and the NFL playing in the same stadium in the Cotton Bowl. And uh, as we'll hear from uh, one of our guests, Burke Murkison. He, the son of Clint Murkison Jr., who was part of chasing down an NFL franchise for Dallas, uh, and essentially uh, becoming the uh, the lead investor and uh, the the chief uh, strategist, if you will, for the iteration uh, and the uh, the dynamics that put together uh, what then became the Dallas Cowboys football franchise. It's a fascinating story. Uh, Burke's got a lot of uh, great memories about his uh, his father uh, Clint Jr. Uh, and uh, Michael Granberry uh, is um, uh, a well known writer for the Dallas uh, Morning News. has been there for a ton of years, and um, the two of them together have uh, conspired to uh, create and craft a, a wonderful tale uh, that uh, is, uh, if anybody grew up watching the NFL in the 1970s and 1980s, for sure. Uh, The Thanksgiving Day games and the the jumping into the uh, Salvation Army pot uh, as uh, still continues today in the new AT&T Stadium. Um, And all those uh, great Dallas Cowboys memories. And again, a few tornado memories, too. Uh, All of those and more uh, will uh, hopefully tickle your fancy this week as we talk about the old and very seminal Texas Stadium Coming up in just a few moments' time, you will enjoy this conversation. I almost virtually guarantee it. All right, let's go back to OldSchoolShirts.com, one of our best sponsors. We'd love to highlight them early and often. P.F. Wilson and his uh, band of merry women and men in Cincinnati. Uh, we couldn't do without them. Again, OldSchoolShirts.com, a promo code for you there is Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And uh, as we like to remind you, uh, all kinds of leagues – uh, and teams of the past, uh, various sports, um, certainly uh, various uh, pop culture collections. Uh, that could be candy and sweets. That could be dead malls. Uh, that could be various food or beers, brands of, of such, uh, amusement parks, radio stations, various nightclubs and other places and restaurants and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, are that you can sort through all of those things for lots of metropolitan areas uh, across these here United States. And uh, we also encourage you to look at the cities tab. And of course, we uh, as a great example, uh, all you have to do is look at the um, just look in the southwest section and uh, click on Dallas. And of course, you'll find all kinds of great stuff uh, devoted to Uh, memories of various things in Dallas's pop culture and sports history. Yeah, there's a Dallas Tornado shirt, gorgeous looking color. It's like a light blue with the original Dallas Tornado spinning NASL stars on the ball logo in the shape of a a tornado. Uh, There's even a Texas Stadium shirt, uh, uh, just in perfect timing for this week's week's episode uh, with the uh, great uh, Uh, look and uh, feel of the actual uh, construction of said stadium with said hole in the roof. Lots more uh, stuff there, not just in Dallas, but also all kinds of other cities and places at OldSchoolShirts.com. Don't take my word for it. Just go onto the website, for God's sakes. Tool around, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And you'll want to buy a couple of things for for sure. And with that promo code GOODSEATS, getting 10% off all of those purchases, well, hey, you know what? Please, God bless. Again, OldSchoolShirts.com. Thank you to P.F. Wilson and friends. And uh, we cannot do this show without the uh, great uh, sponsorship uh, from folks like yourselves. Thank you. All right. And thank you, of course, great listeners out there, as always, for listening further. Here we go. Let's get into the story of Texas Stadium. Yeah, it's about the Cowboys, but, but so much more. Texas Uh, politics and uh, uh, geographies and all kinds of stuff. Here's our conversation that we had with Burke Murkison and Michael Granberry. We had just a couple of weeks ago. Please, as always, enjoy. I think, first of all, uh, our audience would uh, benefit from uh, hearing a little bit of introduction from both of you. And why don't we start with you first, Burke, um, and then Michael, and then once you guys have done that, um, maybe you can both sort of jump in and describe how the two of you came together uh, to kind of chronicle uh, this story. Because I think um, uh, a little bit of background as to how you two came together to do so will be uh, a great starting point.
3: No, that's a good story. That's a you know interesting uh, story there. But personally, I guess what in terms of what. Uh, my profession and family and things like that? Is that what you're thinking or what do you, oh, what do you ab-
2: think? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think Murchison is, is a known surname in, uh certainly in Texas circles, but for the wider audience outside the great state, I'm not so sure.
3: Okay. Well, I am Burt Murchison. I'm the uh, one of uh, dad's three sons and um, a second son born in 49. Um, and of course he was the son of Clint Junior was the son of Clint Senior, who was a monumentally successful uh, entrepreneur and oil and gas uh, professional, dating back to the, you know, really to the depression and, and going forward and ended up uh, having monumental success. And And out of that came uh, his formation of working with, he had three sons, one died, my namesake died when he was only about twelve, but my uncle John, who's two two years older than Dad, uh, through with their with their uh, their father's support, they formed and Brothers, and that was a, a general partnership that was kind of dedicated to managing their investments, and that was the partner, uh, the founding partner of of the Cowboys, and uh, and but Dad. Took personal a lot of personal interest in uh, the Cowboys. Uh, he was a very aggressive investor and entrepreneur himself. Had a lot of vision, and uh, and our uh, but he was joined by with his 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 uh, partner and brother John in the venture, and they ended up. Uh, you know that was the vehicle investment vehicle that that started up the Cowboys itself. And then I, you know, in 1949, I appeared and, uh, and since then, it's kind of interesting. Our uh, dating back 30 years, my brother and I uh, joined joined together. We formed uh, Merck's and Capital Partners, which is a private equity investment partner that would have been back in 1992. And that's the, the vehicle that we've used ourselves for our investing and things. So we've kind of like recreated things a little bit, but on a much you know smaller scale. But at the same time, we've had, we're proud of our success and we view this as a, uh, you know, kind of multi-generational legacy. we like to, we're, we're uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm certain a number of our children will be joining us in the business and hopefully we'll just keep this thing rolling along for generations to come. Uh, I have-
2: before uh, we drag Michael into the conversation, why don't you just give us a a minute or so about uh, Clint Jr. Because Clint Jr. For those who don't know, was your father. Uh, yes. You're mentioning Clint Senior, obviously the the beginnings, I guess, of this uh, 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 of this of this family. But but Clint Jr. For sure uh, is kind of the the centerpiece uh, of this story that we'll get into a little bit more in detail when we uh, drag Michael back into it.
3: Yeah, sure. Well, he, you know, Dad uh, was he he settled back after World War II. He uh, settled with my mother and older brother in Dallas. I was, and that was like in the late forties. And he was a he was just crazy, always crazy about football. And and I recall growing up uh, just being around him and he on Sundays he would always have uh, these grainy black and white uh, uh, videos of not videos, but you know, the, the televised games on TV and it might be, I think Chicago was on a lot, maybe St. Louis. I can't remember. I remember he was always watching it. And he, he lived, he, he, it said he was a goal setter. And very early on, he set a goal for himself to, to bring professional football to Dallas, and he was not getting he would he could never get any cooperation from the NFL, uh, which uh, in in terms of doing an expansion franchise in Dallas, they had attempted one in 1952, that was so undercapitalized that it didn't even make it to the first season, and the NFL took it over. Matt was it Matty Bell or Matt Bell was I can't remember his his first name, but the commissioner.
1: Uh, they, Bert they Bell. Bert Bell, I believe his name Barbie. is Bert, Bert. Bell. Yeah. Bert Bell. Sorry. Yes, anyway, and we've had we've had Bert
2: Bell's uh, son Upton Bell on this this uh, this show, talking about lots of interesting things, like the World Football League, for example.
3: Well, that's neat. Well, anyway, dad tried to buy the tank. At that, tried to buy it, and and got no cooperation from either owners or Burt Bell. I think Burt Bell had. Uh, he was friends with Carol Rosenblum who, who bought the assets or whatever you buy and moved, uh, the team to Baltimore where it became the Colts and interesting, like within, uh, six years later, they pro- they played in the greatest game ever played. So, I mean, it was a f- phenomenal, you know, there was phenomenal success there. And then dad, uh, continued to pursue his interests and actually, uh, uh, went after the San Francisco 49ers, which, didn't work out Uh, the the league was trying to convince him to to buy the Chicago Cardinals which was the second team in Chicago and was already always I don't think it was it was kind of a second fiddle never particularly successful and I think the owners were difficult to deal with and then he also turned towards uh turns to the Washington Redskins and Preston Marshall George George Preston Marshall who uh there's some Really, in, in the book, it, it, and Mike covers it brilliantly, there's some great stories about uh, what Dad, and, and apparently in that first round with, with uh, George Preston Marshall, Dad had a deal, and it called for, George, for Marshall to remain as, as, as a GM and operating partner for five years. And uh, Marshall quickly, shortly thereafter, changed it, uh, demanded 10 years uh you know management contract and, and dad just told him to take a leap. And so that he was back to the drawing board. Uh, and then the, as this as this came on and I guess that would have been in the late sometime in the late 50s or so. And uh and then but as things worked out uh, the uh, Lamar Hunt founded the uh the AFL was one of the or co-founded it, I guess, but was kind of the moving force behind it and founded the uh, Dallas Texans and that and he had, he was also interested in pursuing a franchise for Dallas for the NFL. he got he got so uh, ir- not irritated, but just was ready to do something that he he went went forward and, and formed his own league and team. and that motivated uh, the NFL. Burt Bell to uh, to then turn it opened the door for Dad because they wanted uh, local competition in order to to meet the, the the Texans. And 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 Dad, in spite of the environment, I mean competitive environment, he took a leap and in in and, and bought the franchise. And they began interesting for the first three years they actually played from 60 to 60, 61, and 62 seasons they played in the same stadium, the Cotton Bowl, for three years in a, in a town that was not uh, particularly supportive of professional sports at the time. But it was a bloodbath, but Dad, uh, you know, survived the competition. Whenever it came up, he, he never blinked. Uh, his, his standard response when somebody asked him about his moving the team, the franchise, his comment was, as long as there are two teams, two professional teams and football teams in Dallas, uh, the Dallas Cowboys will be here. So, I mean, he just didn't. And I think, frankly, I think uh, Hunt was uh, Lamar Hunt was more of a pragmatist and and just decided it was time to do something. And that's when he, uh, I guess, pursued Kansas City and made a great deal up there.
2: All right. And, before and before, before we go further I, and, and Michael, I promise we're going to bring it in the conversation in one second. <laughs> I, I do want to get a sense, though. Before we get into the nitty gritty of football, and it, clearly, I think a, a subtext to all this is Dallas as a thriving metropolis and, and devoid of, of having a, a professional football franchise, obviously college football and the high school game running rampant and stuff. And, and, and of course, the NFL and its own, uh, I don't know, uh, ignorance or or reticence to expand uh, Lamar Hunt, obviously, with the AFL trying to push the issue. Where how does your dad even come into college? being a legitimate person to bring this to to Dallas right this is a guy who's inherited quite a bit of dough quite a bit of uh uh oil money has embellished it uh with his own um uh, pursuits as well give me a sense of like him the man why this passion of football in the first place and how does he even sort of just you don't just show up and and say i'm going to bring a football franchise to dallas well,
3: that was that was him i mean he was a goal setter and he was a highly competent driven very intelligent person and, and as far as uh as far as his interest in, in football is concerned it just it was i don't know how it how you know how the light turned on um i know mike in the in the book mentions that it was something that kind of separated him him from his father and it gave him you know a goal a, a, a goal that he set that he could do independently without uh you know his father's support although he was using his inheritance to do it but and and but it just something in terms of his interest in football i'm not sure where it came from exactly frankly but he did play he was undersized he was sickly as a as a youngster his his father all his his, his mother died when he was uh, only two or three and his father didn't remarry Clint senior, but he, he, he always was concerned about him. He was afraid that he, 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 early on, he lived a kind of a sheltered life. And then later on, as he came of age in his teenage years, his, his father just said, look, it's time for him to sink or swim. And that's what came to the point. Was he in that he would didn't, there was no mom, no mother at home. He, uh, he was faced with sending them off to boarding schools, dad to Lawrenceville in in, in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, the Lawrenceville school and our, our uncle to Hotchkiss because he wanted them a different school in Connecticut, but because he wanted them to, you know, kind of uh, hoe their own road more, so to speak. And, and, and it's somewhere I know he played intramural football at Lawrenceville and he just, there's passion for, for football just sprung up and, and, and he, again was a goal setter and he just went for it. And he and he was that kind of guy, he was not risk averse or he, at, at all. I mean, it was on the other opposite end of the spectrum, really they, he, you know, risk did not frighten him. He was kind of oblivious of it. And it was almost suicidal what he was doing, particularly with, with uh, Lamar you know, starting up the, the Texans at the same time, but it was just, that was him he was he was a, a classic and entrepreneur that would just light on the line and it was very impressive
2: and and do you think and I'm sure Lamar was sort of part of this too it, it, this is there's a psychology here right of uh a a, a well-to do inherited uh sort of uh uh you know silver spoon in mouth I guess a uh, desire need something internal to prove one's own metal right without uh sort of sort of being uh I don't, accorded sort I don't of like
3: that, that was I don't th- I don't think it was I don't want to uh, you know to uh, uh, contradict you but I don't I don't think there was anything about proving about dad dad was dad was highly confident I mean he could he was you know when you look at his background educationally and, and think he was just and, and certainly he was born with a lot of money and inheritance and all that, but he was a highly confident individual and he, it was nothing about proving himself. I don't think it was just more or less. Uh, and I'm not sure if I entirely agree with, with, with Mike's theory, but it was more or less something that he was living out a dream and a goal that he had set for himself. And he, that's the way he, 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 he certainly early on that he, he used it as a challenge and, and, you know, uh, from that standpoint
2: mike michael uh, let's drag you back into this uh do you think maybe civic pride has something to do with it or, or some other thing that you could sort of perceive that maybe burke has uh, uh maybe overlooked or whatever or just it was just opportunism frankly
1: well you know since i'm not not a family member i can see it a little maybe a little more objectively or whatever or i see it more as a journalist i see everything as a journalist because i've done this for so long but um I think one of the things that's so interesting to me about this story, Tim, is that, you know, here we are in a place in 2022 when we're talking a lot about fossil fuels going away and people are buying electric cars and all of this. And oil is still obviously a very big thing. We as a world are very dependent on oil. But in the 1950s and 1960s, we were enormously dependent on oil. And uh, Clint Jr.'s father, Clint Sr., was one of four American giants of big oil. They were basically Clint Merkison Sr., uh, a guy named Hugh Roy Cullen, a guy named Sid Richardson, and a guy named H.L. Hunt, Whose son Lamar Hunt also became a National Football League owner, so I I I tend to think that both in Burke is right. I mean, both Lamar Hunt and Clint Murchison Jr. were enormously successful people in their own rights and and very intelligent people, but I do think they they I I do think owning a professional football team uh, became part of their identity. You know, it's something that I mean, let's be honest here i mean they they were they were the sons of fathers who had enormous shadows right and um and i think they one of the things that football gave them was it very much gave them their own identity it was not a part of the identity of clint murkison senior as a matter of fact one of the things that that we say in the book which i find really interesting is um even in Nineteen sixty, you know, as late as nineteen sixty-nine. I think that's when Burke. Am I right? I think that's when Clint Senior passed away in sixty-nine. Yes, I'm yes. Like, okay. Well, the Cowboys by that time were were one of the best teams in the NFL. Their first winning season was sixty-six. So, their fourth, you know, they had twenty consecutive winning seasons, starting in sixty-six. Most of those happened under Clint Junior's ownership, uh, all but the last one or two, I think. Anyway. But Clint Sr. was never enamored of, um, of of Clint Jr.'s wanting to own a football team. And it kind of reminds me, there's a parallel in a way, some of the, there, there are a few parallels in the Murchison story to that of Jerry Jones. You know, we, we talk in the book about how Clint Sr. and Jr. were enormous risk takers. And they share that in common with Jerry Jones. And when Jerry Jones was in his mid 20s, that's when he first wanted to buy a National Football League. He wanted to buy the San Diego Chargers, who were for sale. I mean, he was in his mid 20s. He didn't have the capital to do that, but he still wanted to do it, which is kind of how Jerry is. And his father vetoed it. His father overruled him and told him he was nuts. Right. But, you know, Jerry... You know, his risks from a business standpoint have turned out pretty well. And um, right after his father told him no, and he said, thanks, but no, thanks. I can't buy the chargers, the AFL and the NFL merge and the value of the chargers skyrockets, right? So he had the right instinct. Um, but I think what, you know, Clint had this passion for football, as Lamar did, and they wanted to own a football team and it was their thing. You know, it was not their dad's thing. Right. And I think that meant a lot to them. Now, one of the things, Tim, that I find fasc- fascinating about the Murkison family story is, and I didn't know this until Burke and I start started working on the book, which was way back in 2011. That's when we first got together to do this. And, but uh, Clint Jr. had a brother uh, named John and, um, and I didn't know this until we started working on it. The, um, the two together owned 90% of the Cowboys with what, but what blew me away was that John owned, um uh, the same percentage as Clint Jr. And it, it's interesting because Clint Jr. Publicly at least was very low profile. He hired, Tech Schramm to be his president and general manager. He was enormously success, successful. And then he hired Tom Landry to be his coach, incredible coach. And so, you know, he, he put them in charge and let them do their jobs. And, and he was very low profile. But John, you never heard anything about him. And, and to the, I mean, it was really astonishing to me. I had no idea that he owned the same percentage um, as his, as, as his brother clint jr and uh however it was that they divvied it up it was enormously successful i mean the it just became an incredible franchise but, and but like can when, i can i jump in yeah, for a second
3: yeah, yeah. Uh, because i will say he, he dad did have a lot of civic pride in addition to that because i know people he would be asked all the time why do you ever you know start the cut start up the cowboys and his, his comment was was he'd never buried it was i wanted to bring professional football to dallas and mm-hmm. that i think that in large part he felt strongly about dallas and that would remain the case as he pursued uh, building a new stadium uh, to replace the cotton bowl and i think he saw that possibility of moving a, a leaving Fair Park where it was located and and building it in the western end of downtown. He just saw that as something that would uh, and and also bringing the Performing Arts Center and the some of the museums from down where, where they were located around the Cotton Bowl in Fair Park but bringing them. He just saw that as something that would uh, just uh, you know, be a game changer for Dallas and a lot of it had to do with his his love in, in Progera City.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting because obviously that the Texans were, you know, came in for that one season in 52 and 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 you know, and yet you had both Hunt and uh and Junior right going after the fact that this is, you know, they didn't want to give up on this idea. Um I do want to go step back for one second though. You mentioned the whole George Preston Marshall thing and he's an interesting character on a whole bunch of different levels and we've explored his <laughs> His let's call them idiosyncrasies, and I'm being charitable, uh, uh-huh. about lots of things. But um, I, I kind of want to just scratch on this for a second because uh I, I want to I'm just curious as to what uh your dad kind of and your uncle, I guess, they imparted to you uh, as sort of the origin story here, because uh Marshall had sort of a lock on the whole South, if you will, for the NFL. And it, it's I, I believe there's a kind of an interesting sort of story as to how the the rights that i guess he essentially controlled essentially were loosened to ultimately wind up getting uh your dad uh and, and the ownership group access to the Dallas market once a franchise was uh reenabled in the NFL and, and did it have something to do with the fight song do i have that right the Hale redskins the Red fight Scans. song
3: hey all the redskins i think uh, michael's you yeah. know done a great job writing that up you want to you want to share with him the story michael
1: well it's just hilarious to me i mean first of all it's
2: bizarre to me
1: yeah (laughs) uh, let, let me go back for a second if i will tim to 1952 the the one season that this team the dallas texans played in the cotton bowl before they fell apart crumbled financially um we have you know i have Spoken to a couple of groups, and there was one in Winsboro, Texas, and I I said, "I have a trivia question for you. There are three current National Football League teams that once played in Dallas, and you know, one guy could name the Kansas City Chiefs, and everybody said the Cowboys, of course, and then they were stunned to learn that the Indianapolis Colts, you know, in in a previous uh, incarnation, were the Dallas Texans who played there in." 1952 and that was clint jr's first attempt to get a team and uh and then he tried so hard the 49ers and um, you know didn't like the chicago Cardinals situation and then he tries the washington franchise and george preston marshall as he was wont to do kept reneging uh, moving the goalposts on him that kind of thing and so in order to get the team uh, Clint very cleverly came up with this deal where George Preston Marshall was just crazy about this song, Hail to the Redskins. He loved this song, arguably even more than he loved the football franchise. He just he just worshipped this song. But Clint, to his surprise, found out that George Preston Marshall did not own the rights to the song, that it was co-written by a guy named Barney... Breskin or something like that and then this woman who had been a silent film star who had been married to George Preston Marshall at one time and this guy Barney and the and the and the ex-wife they they didn't like him as as a lot of people didn't like him so they were they were more than willing to allow Clint Jr. to buy the rights to this song and And they
3: approached approached, Mike they approached uh, a a, a, a lobbyist a friend of dad tom webb and right, right. approached new and knew of his relationship with dad and approached him about selling the the copyrights of the song uh right.
1: to him right but anyway he so he gets the rights to the song and um and um and so you know Uh, how did the Dallas Cowboys come into being? Well, I would have to say it comes down to a single word, bribery. I mean, basically he goes to George Preston Marshall and says, if you, um, if you want the rights, if you want the rights to your song back, you're going to have to vote for the Dallas Cowboys to be a franchise or the Dallas franchise to be in the national football league. And, and the reason that was important is any new franchise at that time It had to be passed by a unanimous vote of NFL owners. And um, and so he got it. And uh, but then even after getting it, uh, Clint, who was an incredible practical joker, uh, decided that, you know, this was not a settled matter and he had to have a kind of final revenge. So he imported uh, all these live chickens in crates to the. to the uh, baseball dugout there at DC stadium where they used to play a long time ago. And he was going to, there was chicken feet all over the field and he was going to let release the chickens, but a security guard or a police officer foiled that attempt, but then it didn't die. I guess it was like a, what was it? A year later Burke when the, when he dressed these people up as human chickens and they went onto the field during the halftime show. And, uh, So, you know, this is how rivalries get born, and this is how the rivalry between the Washington team and the Cowboys, uh, which has always been an incredible rivalry, rivalry. that's really how it was born. It was born out of this enmity that uh, Clint Jr. uh, felt for George Preston Marshall and vice versa. And by the way, I just feel like I have to say this, Tim. In my opinion, George Preston Marshall was just an awful man. Uh, He was incredibly racist, and he refused to – this is in the early 1960s – he refused to uh, sign any black players to play on the team. And then he was – fine. after John F. Kennedy became president, he was given a very stern warning about that from Kennedy's um, 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 interior secretary. The the man's last name is Udall. Um, Anyway – he said, you know, as the federal government, we basically own the land on which D.C. Stadium sits. And we'll, this is unacceptable. This is intolerable to us. So it's over. You're going to have to begin to sign black players. And they let him have one more year. And then when he finally agreed to draft a black player, um he would not draft the player himself. He had a lieutenant actually say the name of the player. And, and then, you know, why is it that, that things like this happen to people like this? But anyway, it turns out he drafts um, this great player from Syracuse, Ernie Davis, but he trades him to Washington, to uh, Cleveland for this player named Bobby Mitchell. And unbeknownst to him and the Cleveland franchise, it turns Ernie Davis is about to die. He, uh, he actually had uh, leukemia and he died. So Cleveland basically ends up with a player who's no longer living. And Washington ends up with Bobby Mitchell, the first black player, you know, who played for the franchise, albeit reluctantly on the part of the owner. And Mitchell becomes one of the great players in the NFL. Yeah, he's in the hall of
3: fame,
1: by the way. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it was so funny. Like, um, uh, after the death of George Floyd in the Black Lives Matter protest, there was an outcry in Washington. People wanted the statue of George Preston Marshall removed. It was right outside the old RFK stadium, and it was removed. And so the Washington Post called up either, I can't remember if she was the granddaughter or the niece, and they said- the, The granddaughter, yeah, and they said, well, what do you think about the statue you know, being removed, and and I guess she surprised the reporter. She said, "Well, it's about time. I was wondering when i You know, in so many words, he was a horrible man. What took you so long? You know, that kind of thing.
3: Well, they yeah. just they just scraped him off of everything up there. You know, he was in the right. wash Redskins, not Redskins anymore, but their Hall of Fame, and they removed yeah. him from that. And I don't know. It's just like he doesn't exist anymore.
1: Well, it's so ironic, Tim, because as you know currently the most controversial owner in the NFL is the current owner of the Washington franchise. And, you know, they're, they have recently been investigated by Congress and they're very much under the microscope at the moment. I mean, it is really a beleaguered franchise an embattled franchise in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of parallels between the current owner and the George Preston Marshall regime.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating and, and, odd uh backstory both both the, the the song issue and 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 Marshall I mean you know obviously besides all of that right you know he's you know he's part of part of the the NFL's early uh history right and you know yeah. which is it's hard to ignore all of it um uh much as as people want to but you know he, he's frankly for better or for worse is as seminal as people like George Hallis and Art Rooney and all that kind of stuff i mean the the earliest years of the league and and the war years and all that kind of stuff so but but it's it's fascinating to me and and that you know uh, ironically uh this is a man that you know uh in some way shape or form was actually partially responsible uh despite his best efforts uh for from the very beginnings of, of of this franchise's existence and i i guess i want to just segue i don't want to get into too much of the the cowboys history because the the the, the stadium itself is kind of what i really wanted to focus on because that that sure. in and of itself is fascinating but um it is interesting right because the 1960s was probably uh an amazing time i was barely alive then but uh, an amazing time to be a professional football fan because you had two leagues going at it um and and Dallas was certainly uh very much in, a part of that mix having housing two teams for a period of time um but i guess i'd want to start uh this sort of this thread on the cotton bowl itself maybe a little bit of background on it cuz it was really the only kind of really viable uh playing facility uh in town and it was housing two let's call them bitter rivals at the time in pro football in Dallas. Right.
3: Well, they, uh, you know, they had the did anybody build... have the upper hand? No, not to speak of. I mean, I think the Dallas Cowboys did a little bit because they were playing in the established league. And so I think people felt like they were seeing like a better caliber of, of, of player and team. And they would, you know, so you would see like Jimmy Brown and these established stars, uh, Johnny U, uh, just all the all the great players. And I think that I think that did make a difference. But but both teams it was just like a bloodbath. I mean, it was they were just neither team really excelled. And in terms of not excelled, they did they did uh, Lamar stay did in that in the AFL excelled, but in terms of but from a monetary standpoint, they, they were all just really suffering. And I think that what's finally was the, uh, the straw that, that did it for, uh, was for, uh, Lamar's when his team won the AFL championship at the end of the, of the 50, pardon me, 62 season. And, uh, you know, it didn't, uh, or maybe it was in, yeah. And, and it just didn't make any difference in terms of, or maybe they won at the end of perfect. They won at the end of 61, but they didn't make, it didn't make any difference in 62 in terms of the, you know, turnout paying, paying attendance and stuff. It was, it was just like not even a blip on the screen kind of. And I think that was a, that, that represented a major setback for him, I think. And that's when I think he probably began thinking seriously about moving the team and, Probably opened up discussions with Kansas City and maybe some other people. I have no idea.
1: Tim, I wanted to uh, I wanted to say something about those early years in the Cotton Bowl. Um, for me, it was sort of like the fall of nineteen sixty. I had just entered the third grade, and what was so exciting for a third grade third grade kid in Dallas, Texas, is that overnight we go from having zero professional football teams to having two. And even though neither team was drawing that well um, in the beginning, uh, I mean, it was extraordinary to go to these games. I mean, you you got to you could you know buy a, an end zone ticket for a dollar, and a sideline seat was um, no more than six, and I'm not sure it was even. That. I
3: think it's even lower than that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could go and see Y.A. Tittle and Jim Brown and Big Daddy Lipscomb and these incredible giants of professional football. I mean, Jim Brown alone, it was, it was amazing. And, um, and then of course, when the Cowboys had their first winning season in 1966, it was absolutely electric because you had this astonishing team, Don Meredith, great quarterback, in my opinion, he's throwing passes to Bob Hayes, who was called the world's fastest human because he had won gold medals in the olympics i mean technically he was the fastest human being on earth at the time because of his performances in the olympics and like the early games in the 66 season you know the cowboys were beating people like 56 to 7 you know they were the, they're there and and bob hayes really changed the way uh he changed defenses in the nfl he's basically the reason they came up with a zone defense because these very slow guys would try comparatively slow would try to guard him man to man. And it it was, it was a joke. I mean, they, they, they just couldn't do that. And, um, and, you know, so the cotton bowl was kind of cool in that regard because, you know, we could see these. And then even in terms of the Texans, I mean, there was Abner Haynes and Lynn Dawson. I mean, there were, it was a kind of a, it was really a fun era, especially for a kid. And, um, but, you know, a lot of the book deals with the fact that uh, the city of Dallas, um, here the Cowboys have been in the Cotton Bowl for six or seven years at that point from, and here they have this phenomenal team in 66, it, that season ends with the Cowboys playing in what they called the National Football League Championship game, the first of two back-to-back they played against the Green Bay Packers. And in 66, that particular championship game was played January 1st, January 1st, 1967. I was in the stands with my parents and I, I'm I'm sure Burke was at the game as well. And we lost a heartbreaker uh to the Green Bay Packers. The winner got to go to Super Bowl one against the Kansas City Chiefs who had been the Dallas Texans. Uh, just prior to that. But even with all this going on, Clint is trying uh, behind the scenes first and then more vocally and publicly uh, to get the city to consider a new stadium. And, you know, one of the reasons he wants a stadium in downtown Dallas, and as Burke said, he wants to bring the arts to downtown as well. And, you know, I per I, as a native of Dallas, I think the city was incredibly short sighted about that, about not wanting to work with him in doing that. Um, and, and, and for me, the reason is very emotional. I mean, the I was in the sixth grade when President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, that had a huge impact on the city and on the Cowboys franchise. And I think Clint Jr. felt correctly that it would be very, good for the city and particularly for downtown to do that. It would also be good uh, for the city, um, you know, to heal. I mean, you know, people all over the country call Dallas the city of hate in the wake of of that assassination. And um, it was it was a very difficult time for the city, particularly for those of us who were very young at the time. And, uh, you know, I remember we had a symposium. Uh, my newspaper, the Dallas Morning News, hosted a symposium for the 50th anniversary of the assassination. And somebody correctly noted that from 1963, for the next 50 years, downtown Dallas was basically a ghost town. And and it would have been so different if, uh, if they had... Uh, you know, if they had worked with him and and built a state-of-the-art stadium in downtown Dallas. And it was, with him, it was never an issue of public money because when he goes to Irving, Texas, people find this hard to believe. He never took a penny of taxpayer money the whole time they were in Irving, Texas. And, and, and you know, I have to say this as a current reporter in Dallas, it, you know, the Cotton Bowl has, one marquee game a year and since that's texas and oklahoma which takes place every year during the state fair of texas
2: Red, red river rivalry
1: that's correct and when um but you know it's like since clint since he announced that he was moving to irving that's when they started this ongoing process of renovations and they just did it again on november 8th this technically does not involve taxpayer money but voters approved something called the brimer bill which is tied to a proposed two percent increase in hotel taxes but one of the things it's going to is further upgrades of the cotton bowl which again has one marquee game a year and they didn't begin to make even modest renovations to the cotton bowl until he announced he was moving to Irving, which I just find astonishing.
2: Well, it it also it so it's it's interesting on a whole whole bunch of different fronts. I mean, it, quick little uh, anecdote. I I think the uh, the the NFL championship game nineteen sixty six, which obviously led to the first Super Bowl afterwards for the for the Packers, uh, the, right. b- 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 retroactively became. But uh, the Cotton Bowl actually uh, the actual game was held the day before, usually on January 1st. But for That's this right. case, because right. it was yeah. an NFL game and stuff. But I guess what, to me, that sort of speaks to, I guess at the time, and maybe certainly not now by comparison, um, the Cotton ball was uh, in use quite a bit, right? And uh, uh, venerable perhaps even back then, uh, but perhaps a, a, a bar- maybe not sort of where um, – The NFL was sort of looking. As you think about other stadiums that were coming online at that point, including the AFL, right? There's, well, uh, actually,
1: actually, Tim. One thing we found in our research is in '66, when the Cowboys had their first winning season, there really were not any NFL stadiums coming online. What What blew me away in doing the research is in '19, the Cotton Bowl was built in 1930 at the height of the great depression and in 1966 this was part of our research for the book many of the nfl teams played in baseball stadiums they shared they shared baseball stadiums with wrigley field was one of the stadiums um tiger stadium in detroit um there were a, a lot of a, a lot of teams that shared in a lot of these stadiums the cotton bowl Astonishingly, was one of the newer stadiums in 1966, and it was built in 1930 that Franklin Field in Philadelphia was actually built in the 1800s. And this is how Clint became, uh, as I I think our book shows, I mean, a visionary and a pioneer because he really saw that that this way uh, where these teams were playing was extremely antiquated. And he was, he was so bright and he was smart enough and perceptive enough to see that at some point salaries were going to skyrocket, television revenue would tap out as it did, and owners were going to need another source of revenue. And today, I dare say, the stadium um, has become, you know, the number one source of revenue. And, you know, Jerry Jones, for instance, is somebody who seized on that and kind of put the whole notion on steroids as we say in the book but but really it was incredibly antiquated in uh 66 I mean they they uh what what you then had in the 70s not long after Texas Stadium opened in 71 is then the next trend was also something Clint Jr wisely did not like and that was they would still, share stadiums with baseball teams, but it would be these multi-purpose stadiums, you know, like three- right Atlanta,
2: Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, right? Which which came out right. on in 1966, kind of maybe the vanguard of that, right? But it was a Correct. new construction and it and Correct. it it lured two teams literally overnight. <laughs> right. And and then and that, like that had to three give people rivers, some pause. Yeah.
1: Three rivers in Pittsburgh. I I can't remember what the one in Cincinnati was called. But then the trend, as you know, I think it was the 80s with uh with that baseball stadium in Baltimore, what is it called? Um, uh, the, the, uh, the Orioles stadium, uh, Camden yards that started a new trend in baseball where they went to this kind of baseball only retro stadium and then football kind of did the same. Right. So, um, uh, until recently the Oakland Coliseum was, I think the only one left that was, doing baseball and uh, football, but uh, well, yeah. So, the, you
2: know. so the, the, the idea though, he gets that idea sort of in the mid to late sixties for sure. I, I guess where, where I'm trying to get to is um, obviously the, the, the neighborhood was already kind of going through its fits and starts there and stuff. And he already had eyes. So I guess it sounds like though, that he kind of tried to lobby Dallas it's a pretty sprawling city, right? Great geography, lots of different places where one could create a, a new stadium. But it seems like uh, it didn't go very well. And 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 the suburbs, I, I guess that's the other sort of issue. And I'm not a native Texan, right? Nor a native Metroplex guy, right? Um, the idea well, of to Texas, you know- which is miles away, seems so. Well, it
3: really, it really, it, it's, very, it's, it's not miles away. And, and it was in his mind, I mean, when he was not able to, to get any cooperation from uh, Mayor Eric Johnson or the city council, uh, he continued to try to convince them and he didn't stop trying to convince them, but he did start a secondary search for an alter alternate location because by that point uh mayor johnson and others had been so offensive to him and degrading really i mean this the the level of the level of uh, negotiation just fell off the fell off the cliff so to speak and he was not going to play he was on a long-term basis he was not. He was not the kind of man that would go back and play, ever play in the Cotton Bowl on a long-term basis.
2: Well, why, so I'm sorry, began, why? Why do you think that was Burke? And and do you think the, people, the Dallas these, people felt that maybe he couldn't go anywhere else?
3: That's yes. That's what the city. That's what the Johnson and there's a guy. There's a person named uh, Robert Cullum who headed up the Fair Park and was head of the Fair Park Association, and they felt like he had no alternative, and so and so they just just ignored him and refused to really negotiate with him. And that caused him uh, to try to, con- to continue the discussions, but at the same time, seek an alternate site. And he went, uh, you know, they're out. At, uh, AT&T currently is out in Arlington, Texas, as are some, the baseball stadium and others. And, and back then, there was a minor league team that played in something called the Turnpike Stadium, I think, Mike. Right, and, right. It was a baseball thing and, and he did look at that, uh, because there was something existing there, but he his comment was, I can't ask my fans to draw cowboy fans to drive that far to a game. And so he wanted to and and you know, Dallas was this entirely this is back in the, you know, mid sixties, Dallas is an entirely different place. And and so he had a friend Irving is just west of the Trinity River. Just, it's, you know, just across the Trinity River from Dallas.
1: As a matter of and, fact, that Texas Stadium, Burke, was, I don't know if we have this in the book, but Texas Stadium was about almost exactly one mile. Think about that one mile from the Dallas city limit sign. One yeah, it's mile.
3: pretty, it's, it's pretty amazing. right across the Trinity River. And, and, and he, it was his, his, his conclusion that, while he, that this that that actually Texas State at that location was superior to any it was a superior location in, in the entire metroplex and even superior to the downtown location because people are gonna have to drive downtown to go to the games and this was much more accessible. And and so he he started up discussions, clandestine discussions with uh, he had an introduction through a friend who was a, a business guy that was a Irving native, Max Thomas. And, and it's that's it's a fascinating story about what he went through uh, doing kind of coming in the back door. And he faced there. He faced a lot of opposition there, too. Also, I mean, the, the existing mayor, the uh, uh, what's it? I'm trying to think of his name right now. But
1: anyway, he, uh, uh, the guy at the time was Robert Power, the mayor. The... No,
3: he wasn't the mayor.
1: No, no, no. Uh, a guy named Brown wasn't he? Wasn't he? Yeah, a... Lynn
3: Brown. Lynn Brown, and he was the uh, he was a five term incumbent, mm-hmm. and and he he basically uh, wouldn't even talk to Dad about about the the, the possibility of Cowboys building there. And so Dad, with Mac Thomas's help, went in the back door and began speaking with uh, some of the younger city councilmen, one of whom was Bob Bob Power and there there were others involved and 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 then but you know he he couldn't do anything without getting the current city council and the mayor on board and so what he did was actually made a deal with bob to to support his campaign to have him elected mayor of, of Irving and and it went through it was a very tight it was a very tight election and it went through a, actually it was a runoff right mike it was a runoff and yeah Yes. And he and 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 so it was just like the whole thing was just inches. I mean, it, it could have easily failed. And and but but power was able with dad's support was able to pull it off and and became mayor. And, you know, the rest is history. It's a really it's a fascinating story.
1: You know, Tim, one thing interesting to me in doing this and telling this story is how the whole stadium thing the whole issue has evolved in the United States. You know, you go from this period in 66 when, you know, you have only city owned rental facilities where a Coke and a hot dog are basically, you know, that's, that's it for, in terms of food or entertainment. Right. And, and then Clint really, really redefines the experience um, at Texas stadium. But, but, you know, as we're, as we're talking here, one of the things that was Was I think there's a lot of grieving that goes on among people in Dallas about, well, Dallas has blown it twice. Uh, When Texas Stadium was on the way out and Jerry Jones was looking for a new stadium, um, you know, a lot of people in Dallas said, great, this is an opportunity for the Cowboys to return to Dallas where they have not played a game since 1971. And that's true. The Dallas Cowboys have not played a game in Dallas, Texas since 1971. And when they, you know, they played the first couple of games of the 71 season at the Cotton Bowl when Texas Stadium was getting ready. And then October 24th of 71, that was their first game at Texas Stadium. But anyway, we interviewed Jerry Jones. He's one of the, we interviewed 150 people, at least all of them on the record, which I'm very proud of as a journalist. They're all on the record. A lot of people we we interviewed some separately we interviewed some together but we interviewed all those people and he was one of them we spent a couple of hours with him he was very generous with his time but what's interesting to me about him and you know he is to some extent a controversial figure in Dallas a bit of a lightning rod you know people are upset that that the Cowboys have not been in an NFC championship game much less a super bowl Since January of 96, um, you know, so 26 years and counting is, as my youngest son, Joshua likes to say, the last time, he's 26 exactly, and he says, the last time the Cowboys were in an NFC championship game, much less a Super Bowl, I was in utero, and that (laughs) is literally true. Um, I took my son to the last Cowboys Super Bowl. He was 37, he's 37 today, he was 10 that day. So and people blame that on Jerry. They blame that on him, you know, the firing of Jimmy Johnson and so forth. But no one would say that he's not a phenomenal businessman. You know, he's he really didn't have an enormous amount of capital when he bought the team in 1989 for one hundred and forty million. But as you know, today, it's it's considered it's the wealthiest franchise in sports in the world. And I think the figure is now close to $8 So he's pretty extraordinary. But during our interview, he said the most, something that I've thought about so much. He said that, you know, like so many people in Dallas sort of grieve over the fact that, well, it's not in Dallas. But he said that he doesn't see it anymore in terms of like a kind of a parochial deal, you know, that. The Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. Dallas is not even the largest city in Texas. Houston is. Dallas may be even number three. I'm not sure if San Antonio is two or three, but it's kind of neck and neck. But Dallas is now a regional area. The Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, I think, is still the fourth largest, but it's people say it's soon to become the third largest metro region in the country. That's behind New York. Los Angeles and then Dallas will soon supplant Chicago, or so say the experts. And Jerry said that's why Arlington is the perfect location for me, because it's in the middle of this vast metro area. In other words, he sees it very much in business terms, in logistical terms. He doesn't see it at all in nostalgic terms, or wouldn't it be sweet if they could play in Dallas where they used to play? And At one time, there was a movement to have them play in the cotton or near in Fair Park where the Cotton Bowl is to have them play there. At the same time, though, what I noticed in doing the research for the book is the stadiums that, in my opinion, have really succeeded in the United States and where I think they're the most successful, both aesthetically and financially, are the ones that are in downtown areas. Like the last time I went to Minneapolis. I was blown away by here they have this gorgeous brand new football stadium, gorgeous new baseball stadium, relatively new basketball, hockey arena, the Guthrie Theater, art museums. They've got everything downtown. And Denver is essentially the same. San Diego built this. I used to live there when I was in the Los Angeles Times Bureau in San Diego. They built this beautiful new baseball stadium. Petco Park in what used to be a horribly blighted area, horrible area. It totally transformed the area, and um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of these downtown areas have really benefited from from successful stadium projects. But
2: yeah, it does. It does. I'm sorry, it does ebb and flow, right? I mean, I think the the time in which you were talking about this Texas stadium, though, was certainly one of the. It was definitely looking. I mean, look at the early 70s, right? You had. Well, Schaefer Stadium, let's we'll put that aside for a second. I mean, you know, that that was a regional play for sure and arguably cheaply built. But you look at Rich Stadium in 73, right? That was an Orchard Park suburb of Buffalo, right? The Pontiac Silverdome, that was a bold move getting out of the city of Detroit, right? Um, this is actually uh, uh, prescient, I think, uh, on the uh, the part of uh, of Clint Jr. in, in many respects to right. to to push this out. And and look, it's also let's let's call a spade a spade. This is the beginnings, it seems, of a of a of a generation of football only stadiums. Now, if you fast forward to today, right, every sport seems to want to have its own, and right. operated stadium, right, which yeah. is like you know times four or six depending on how many leagues you think are. But right. that that's a pretty big deal, right, because it centralizes and harmonizes revenue streams, right? It, he yeah. becomes clint and and team become the owners and operators, not the renters anymore
1: that's right. And, and, and when we interviewed Jerry, he was very complimentary of Burke's dad because he said that was a that was a game-changing calculus. I think the phrase he used was the most brilliant thing he did was, you know, the 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 the, the seat option bond concept. It's taken on several evolutions since then. But he says, it allows you to reseed the stadium, which becomes a very lucrative thing to uh, to the owner. And let's be honest, I mean, look at player salaries now. They are like, like I couldn't, the Texas Rangers a couple of days ago signed that pitcher Degrom from the Mets, and I couldn't believe how much they were paying him, you know? I mean, and the stadiums that they play in are one of the big reasons they're able team sports teams in any sport now are, are able to afford those salaries.
3: But also in addition to that, that was all about, uh, the, the spectator and, and, in doing Texas stadium, he did, you know, coming out of the cotton bowl, which had, had he referred to it as fully depreciated. And that was, a uh, that was being complimentary because the place was falling down around, uh, you know, just falling down, and and when he built Texas Stadium, it was all about the spectator having sufficient parking uh, that was uh, not just efficient, but it was walkable and fairly close. And then, in addition, just the uh, the chair back seats, the uh, sight lines, the closest to the field. Uh, it was, you know, everything he put into that uh, put the uh, pro- prioritized the, the spectator.
2: Well, and there was there was no bad seat in the house either, right?
3: Right. That was the way. That was the way. And and actually, it's interesting. It ended up being just over sixty five thousand in in capacity. But he had hoped to do a fifty five thousand to make it even more intimate and close to the field. But he just couldn't make couldn't make the numbers work.
2: It. it I also, the
3: cost, uh,
2: Yeah, growing up as a kid, though, too, I remember you know in the early mid seventies. Um, it also looked just gorgeous on television. I mean, with the stars that are on the on the the, the border around the around the the field and the the right. symmetry of it all, and the, and the color scheme. Right. I mean, it looked like it was. I mean, literally, it looked ahead of its time.
3: Oh yeah, well, it was it was great. It was groundbreaking, and it was something that, uh, you know, and that was important to him. He he was uh, you know, he was a brilliant guy, and he had an engineering background. Uh, I think molecular engineering as an undergrad, and then he got a, a master's in math from MIT. And but he loved architecture, and he he designed, was was very involved in all of the design of his homes, particularly a primary one at uh, uh, the, the last one he built in the in the early '60s that took him about ten years to finish. But his his uh, his formula was was to hire. One a, a top-notch architect, and then work with them, collaborate with them, and develop kind of a uh, a model, kind of a, a, a vision, uh, a working model for the the concept, kind of a uh, working concept on the thing, and then he would so when he, when he once he created that he would because those people are many of those that he he used were very expensive, but 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 he also wanted to be hands-on and then what he would do is take that concept and turn it over to a local architect and then work hand and collaborate with the local uh, in terms of finishing the construction so he was very much involved in every step along the way here and uh the it's interesting the uh warren morey the the fellow he he hired who had been recommended to him by friends who had, he built a home for a friend or something. And, but Warren, in terms of background, hadn't really done much. I mean, he did a holiday in downtown Dallas and uh, uh, like a, a class, you know, a, a building at a college up north in the, in North Texas. And, but, you know, dad just liked him and he, and what he wanted is somebody who could execute. And Warren at the time it was funny. It was, he only had, he had a small shop downtown with only like two draftsmen or something. I mean, it was just a small shop, but dad, you know, he and dad were able to pull it off and did a, you know, magnificent job in doing it. But so much of it was dad's own vision and his own his own uh, uh, capacity to be involved in, 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 in God, the process
2: really. Tell, tell me about the roof. Obviously that's the, the, the hook of the book and, and the, the, and it's iconic. Uh, the photography of it and, and, and the, the sun and, and all that kind of stuff. The, 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 quote unquote hole in the roof was not the original design, right? This was originally designed, was it designed to be completely covered or retractable or. or, or yeah.
3: Well, he now it was originally just like, it, like it is. Uh, but then in, you know, when he was thinking through this uh, in the meantime, I think in 65, the Astrodome uh, opened down in Houston and which was you know totally closed, and what dad Dad was all in for the hole in the roof and the elements that was he wanted to keep the keep the uh, elements involved in the game. He thought that was important. Uh, but then what happened is he 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 studied uh, and he t- and he actually ended up hiring a guy from the Astrodome. He had been in management there in terms of management and operations, and. And what he did, what he saw is that the Astrodome was able to book a lot of events that were totally unrelated to its to its primary uses the baseball and football. But they were do, able to do all sorts of events there, uh, you know, rodeos and boxing matches and uh, uh, bullfights. I mean, all this crazy stuff. But it, it made uh, concerts and it made for. Of a large source of alternate income from just the primary applications and and Dad saw that and and while he was never going to air condition Texas stadium, I think what he hoped was that in more you know more ambient times in the, of the year, he would using he would be able to add by adding a retractable roof, he could close it temporarily for the, those kind of applications. And, and, uh, and, and so he tried hard. There was some, uh, I think they tried a couple of times on, on on retractable roofs. There was one that was made out of some kind of like soft material or something. And, and, and after testing, none, none of this would work, unfortunately. Um, The, and so he just had to, had to abandon it at the time. And it was just, it, it was kind of a setback for him, but at the same time, he, you know, he went forward and it, and 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 the 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 uh, hole remained open uh, thereafter. So that's the way that worked.
2: Well, it's it's interesting too because it obviously became such a visual um, uh, iconography, if you will, the team, and, and arguably around the time it was a, a team to be uh, to be reckoned with, right? M- multiple championships and. Uh, You know, it was they were a juggernaut as a team. Right. And the fact they were on national television, the Thanksgiving games. Right. So that that stadium became literally inextricably entwined uh, with the success of the team. I don't know which came first, if you will. But,
3: you know, that area was on a little triangle. It's called the uh, is where the what three highways came together. It's 114, 183, Luke 12. And, And that came to be known that triangle came to be known as Bermuda triangle because teams would come in and never get out alive. Uh, it was kind of funny, but, uh, and, and it did, I mean, it was, it was incredible and, and people, uh, you know, it was a beautiful stadium and, and it, and it, and it grew to be kind of symbiotically connected with the team. And, and, you know, it's interesting because later on uh, as, as time went on, you know, Jones White fought the team and one of the things he did, he was looking for anything he could do to to increase the revenues generated by the stadium for himself. or and and one of the things he did is is to uh, in conflict with existing rules of of uh, you know everything was uh, shared cooperatively on on advertising. You'd have, or, or sponsorships where you'd have the beer of the NFL or the or the uh, Credit card of the NFL and all this kind of stuff. Well, he started st- selling sponsorships, not for the team, which would have been, you know, illegal according to NFL rules. But he sold them for Texas stadium, and and it was just kind of an end around a little bit, very sneaky and things. But it, it and it was something that ended up benefiting and in, in him and other owners in an enormous way because he he brought change with respect to those sponsorship sales. Mm-hmm. And it was it was based on, you know, the, the the association of the stadium with the team, how closely they were associated. It's very interesting, I think. I, I
2: my sense is that I, I don't I'm not sure that they that this uh, the Texas Stadium was the originator of the uh Skybox suite uh, dynamic, but I think by most accounts around the in the seventies, it was probably the most um I don't know, preeminent and uh maybe best uh uh user i guess of that uh, uh of that device uh at stadium club as well i guess the personal seat license thing too it it seemed like again all those sort of ingredients of i guess the the, the initial new expansionary tributaries of revenue uh, associated oh, yeah. with money well, yeah, franchise was, a, was coming yeah, ahead and here.
3: that yeah and that was all you know dad was that was all about dad too and and he had seen they, they had been luxury suites or uh, in, in the Astrodome, for example, but they were almost like an afterthought. They were way up the very top of the, uh, you know, along the roof line. And, and the sidelines were terrible and they were, you know, so distant. You couldn't really see that. It was, you know, it was kind of, I don't know. I think they just threw, threw them in at the last minute, it looked like. And then, but the idea itself, uh, he had seen a, uh, used down in the uh, Azteca Stadium down in Mexico City, which is a soccer stadium. And, and 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 in that case, the 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 field itself was you know subgrade. It's kind of just Texas Stadium was also where the field was way be, you know substantially below the uh, uh, the ground there, and so was Aztec. And, and what they had was suites circling the stadium that people could actually drive up to, and get out of the car and walk into their suite to watch the game. It's pretty remarkable. But but then he just took it. And what he did is, he really brought it to a real commercial scale. I think in the first they had those two levels of this. He called them circle suites, and there was a total of uh, almost two hundred suites. I think one hundred eighty-eight or something. And 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 so it was the first one that really applied it on a truly commercial scale that uh, that attracted a lot of uh, buyers and 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 uh, was very successful. It ended up he was, he was, I think he ended up being frustrated. They sold for uh 50,000 equivalent of, in bonds, but of $50,000. And I think in hindsight, he felt like they sold so quickly and were such, they were such, uh, they were so much, uh, you know, created so much excitement that in hindsight, I think he wished he probably would have either, Maybe I don't sell them for more. Maybe not, but maybe leasing them on a long-term basis, where you could, you know, re-up the leases on on on, on some basis. But at the same time, even at even at fifty thousand dollars each, that created uh, about a a third of well fifty times one hundred eight. So it created about a, a third of uh, uh, the cost the, the the cost of the stadium just for the suites in terms of you know revenue generation. And then plus your tickets beyond that. But just, you know, he was looking for capital to finish the stadium out with when he sold them.
1: But one thing I wanted to note, though, about the sweets, Tim, is I think I read one. There's been so many books about the Cowboys. And in one of them that I read, I can't remember who did it or what the title was, but they sort of accused Clint of like stratifying, of stratification, you know, that he added this uh this kind of, um, element to the, to the league or whatever. And I, I really disagree with it in terms of Texas stadium, because, uh, Burke, we added this up once. I think there were a little, there were about 2000, a little over 2000.
3: It it's 188 times. Um, they would 12. So I think 12 tickets per, per, uh, First suite, so twelve times one hundred, whatever that number is. What is it like twenty five hundred or three thousand or
1: something? Yeah, it's it's twenty two fifty six. So two two thousand two hundred fifty six tickets in a stadium that would seat sixty five thousand people, right? Yeah. Uh, So that's hardly stratification. And as you pointed out to me once, like I think it that those the the surprisingly successful sales of those suites. Ended up financing what about a third of the stadium's construction? Yeah, that's what
3: I, that's what I tried yeah. to say. Yeah, again. yeah.
1: Well, any, yeah. but but one thing, I Tim, if you don't mind, one thing I would love Bert to to say, which he and I have talked about, is obviously this stadium thing has gone crazy, right? We have high school stadiums in Texas, taxpayer funded high school stadiums with luxury suites, right? Uh, I think the example I use, Katie, Texas, $72 million. Um, and Berg, you, we have a chapter in the book called the Franken stadium or Franken stadium. You know, you, you told me that your dad in many ways would be sort of horrified by some of these excesses. I, I love to hear you elaborate on that. Would that be okay? Well, to if, if yeah, more, no, you, no, absolutely. Okay. I was
2: going to close with that, but I do want to get to that because for sure, um, is it peak right have we gone too far and or what is the tipping point but it doesn't seem like there is one just yet
3: well yeah i mean i am surprised every you know with the with regard to people's willingness to pay up for tickets and suites i mean i just you know it, it just it it boggles my mind but at the same time i mean i think the the sport and the and the it's it's destroyed part of the great part of the sport in my mind in terms of you know family involvement and people going out to the game uh you know for for the the home games together and uh, all the uh camaraderie and fellowship that goes along with that I mean I just think I think that's a that's kind of it's 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 going away and I think what you what you, what I've noticed I don't go out there much at, to AT&T but what I've noticed there's there's very very infrequently do people Show up in the same same seats where you're seeing the same people week after week, and what what happens is you just have a lot of people buying these tickets and they're using using them for special occasions, and and so they're out there. We we uh, you see it. You also see a lot of the the visiting teams. I mean, I think everybody's just. I guess we just have too much money or something. But yeah, everybody's you know traveling to away games, and you see uh, visiting fans show up. Uh, many of which, you know, may live locally, but they probably fly in for games, special things. And it's, and, but I think you're losing some of the, some of the, you know, the, 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 the loyalty and stuff that may have existed at one time, but I, you know, I can't, it's, it just kind of, I scratch my head a little bit to see the, to, to see the, to kind of understand the, the current viability of it, when it's it, when when you look at the prices they're charging, not only for tickets but also parking, and it's crazy. I mean, so, I don't you know. know it, it, actually, going, Tim,
1: I want I wanted I wanted to uh, to to follow up on that. I mean, again, I hate to come back to this, but as a journalist, it just amazes me that Clint never took a penny of taxpayer money, and and it's just it's astonishing because, like. As we were talking here, I looked up this article on Market Watch, which appeared in late October. The new stadium in Buffalo, New York. We know Buffalo loves their Buffalo Bills, right? And they finally, but this is an outdoor stadium. This, to my knowledge, this is not an indoor stadium or one even with a retractable roof. The overall price of this is going to be $1.5 billion outdoor stadium. That's even more than AT&T Stadium. And according to MarketWatch, this recent story, $850 million in taxpayer money, which is an all-time record. It's now, that surpasses the previous record of $750 million, which was spent on the new Raiders Stadium in Las Vegas in 2016. $850 million in public money. And what was so fascinating about texas stadium was the the seat option bond concept which was controversial at the time but in retrospect i think it was remarkably egalitarian because the users of the stadium financed the stadium and and even in even in you know 1967 dollars you know they it was a reasonable price and uh, you know, I, I, I it, particularly when I was with the L.A. Times, I would interview a lot of economists. The one that comes to mind is Roger Knoll, N-O-L-L with Stanford University. Sure. He felt ADMs were a very bad deal for for taxpayers in cities. He felt they should all be privately financed, especially in a league with 32 billionaires. Right. I mean, why why are they why are they forcing taxpayers to in a small city like Buffalo to cough up eight hundred fifty million In public money, can you imagine what that money might do for some of the social issues, I'm sure they have in the no,
2: it's only getting. I mean, look, I, in Nashville is, uh, looks like they're going to back up the truck too. I, you know, if you read right. uh, a quick yeah. shout out to uh, Neil Demouse and and his uh, his website, the Field of Schemes, uh, coming out of the book that uh, he wrote a, a bunch of years ago. Um, literally, he just he literally every great, day is, is yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: every day is devoted to uh, the uh, the hypocrisy and the uh, astonishing. Uh, sleights of hand, I guess, when it comes to all that stuff. I don't know. To me, it feels. I, I agree with. I agree with all of your logic, and then some. Um, and which, which even makes this story even more interesting and 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 astonishing. And in some respects, you know, what would Clint Junior sort of think about all of this? I mean, has it gone too far? I mean, in some respects, right? This was the beginning. This era, the early seventies, Texas Stadium probably the crown jewel of that era, of of uh, bringing in luxury boxes and bringing in personal seat licenses and 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 bringing more fan, shall we say, comfort and uh, 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 you know uh, uh, spectacle, if you will, uh, surrounding uh, the but games it, and it that kind of stuff, right?
3: But it wasn't just comfort. I mean, it wasn't just comfort and spectacle. It was like it was a better experience for them. They could see they were closer to the field. They were exactly. they were right at you know they had good sight lines. They had like if you if you track the first row around the circumference of the field. It was high enough at 50-yard line so that the, the fans could see over the, the players as they along the bench line, along the sideline, and still see the field. But as you went, as you proceeded around, you know, down towards the goal line and around the end zone, the level, the height of the first row of seats would increase so that when you ultimately got around to the end zone, looking, you know, lengthwise down the field, You'd be about thirty feet above the field. I don't know what it was, but I'd say like thirty feet above the field or so to maintain that perspective. And so, Dad was, uh, you know, I think, I think, and, and he did include luxury or whatnot. But I mean, what he was, there was a practicality that was geared towards the experience of the fam. Well,
2: and look, and, and, and you're also, I don't mean to, I, uh, you're also though getting to the fact that the the game and the uh, the event was was prime prime among the reasons for going. That's, in in many respects, That's it's almost like the sideshow, right? I mean, you, right. in a world where in Atlanta Braves or Chicago Cubs, for that matter, right? It's literally, or the Chicago Bears now in Arlington Heights here in the Chicago area, right? It's not about, ba- <laughs> the stadium is is but a piece now of a bigger real estate play, right? What are the yeah. things that are going to attract people that are not on game day, before game, after game. The hell with the game, right? In some respects, right? It almost feels like the game is superfluous, which yeah, is sad. That's what
3: they've done out in L.A. Also, apparently, this new one out there.
2: Yeah, I just think that's sad. I mean, and and again, I'm I don't want to be old man yelling at the clouds, but but I I think what you're you're getting at is is absolutely right. I mean, there is something about making the fan experience of of a going to a game, collegial, yeah. you know, common. Right. Uh, a rooting experience and, and, you know, not and keeping the stratification, maybe like after the game, when, when the, the world is stratified now, When you get on an airplane and, and you're getting a, a, what kind of car you drive. I mean, all that kind of stuff, everything is stratified. God forbid right. you could have a communal experience watching a sporting event, but no, no, it's, just, not. Yeah,
3: it's, it's maddening. And I think, I think uh, that he, you know, would, would realize that. And when you, when you take what he paid, what was the money and, it was a Spartan effort because he knew he could only, you know, he was using a lot of his own dollars, including his fan, you know, spectators that were buying these seat option bonds and stuff. And so he, he knew he was only capable of raising so much money. And so that, that money that was, I think we calculated, it was like $31 million uh, before financing costs. So just for the, the equity and, and that, if you do a present value analysis of what those dollars, what they would represent today, it was about three hundred fifty million dollars, not including real estate. And so, you know, I mean, he would just you can you can accomplish that, and 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 still provide you know a real a good experience that's it's, that represents a good value for your spectator. And I think that's where Dad would come out on this thing, is that you know, he would get them there and he would give them some some decent food and get them some good seats where they could see things and be close to the field and enjoy the experience.
1: You know, Tim, one thing that he was so bright about, so perceptive, is, and, and again, 66 seemed to be kind of, you know, a, a turning point year in a lot of ways. That is coincidentally when he had his first winning season. It was a spectacular team, but, One of the reasons he felt that stadiums, particularly in the mid 60s, needed an immediate and dramatic upgrade is that pro football was finally exploding on television. I mean, the turning point was that game in 58 where Baltimore beat the New York Giants in overtime in Yankee Stadium. They call that the greatest game ever played. Uh, that was in black and white on TV but that's the first time a large number of Americans plugged in to a pro football event on national television and then it kind of went up incrementally from there I mean these these back-to-back NFL championships game championship games by the Cowboys and the Packers in 67 were extraordinary you know the second one was the ice ball game in, in Green Bay but Clint realized that if they didn't begin to upgrade stadiums fairly dramatically that they were going to lose their entire fan base to television and you know television was was really beginning to um you know percolate and you know um uh, I, I i just looked this up while we were talking uh, color television was introduced to consumers in 1954 but fewer than 1% of American homes had a color TV by the end of that year. But 10 years later, nearly 98% of American homes still did not have one. That's 64. But as the 60s moved on, more and more people had color TV. And, and, and you know, one of the funniest anecdotes in the book to me is after Clint, you know, is announced as the the owner of this new franchise, the Dallas Cowboys. He has an interview with Blackie Sherrod, who was one of the great American sports writers who spent his whole career or most of his career, his whole career in North Texas. He told me this anecdote on the record. He he was my colleague uh, for a while at the Morning News. Blackie passed away a few years ago, but but it's a great story where, he goes to Clint's office. This is the early 60s. I think it may have been 1960, right after he bought the team and so, or or started the team. And, and Clint said, You know, you see that wall there, Blackie. In the future, there's gonna be TV sets that will cover that whole wall. And the sound will make it sound like you're sitting in the stadium. And Blackie's sort of nodding. And he said to me, you know, like on the way. my car I just kept thinking wow this guy is really nuts and uh you know but that's what we have now right and uh I mean you know as a fan I'll be very honest I don't like going to the stadium anymore I mean the televisions that you have in your homes now with the sound systems they're extraordinary and but he knew that in terms of owning a sports team that could that was not altogether a good thing that that stadiums were were going to have to improve dramatically suddenly if they were if they were you know if they were going to be able to keep fans coming to the game at all
2: so uh we could go on forever i i uh, and i you know I, I don't want to drag you to like a third hour of this conversation because it's just not yeah. fair but um i do want to maybe just maybe on a, on a positive note maybe sort of turn all of what we just talked about Ah, uh, maybe on a dime here, because I think it actually is kind of, um despite all of that. And I agree with you on, on all that front. It's, it's, uh, it, it is. I, I, let's see. Let's see what maybe an economic downturn, uh, you know, the the raft of of private equity into sports and investment, and let's see where that goes. I, I don't think, I don't think it goes on exponentially forever. I think there will be. I think there'll be some kind of correction of something to, to some kind of mean, but I do think it's actually kind of curious and interesting and maybe, um, a, a bit touching, uh, if you could even call it that. Um, and I've not been to AT&T stadium, but it's my understanding that, uh, in that retractable roof environment, there is a setting there. I think with the old Texas stadium in mind, uh, where it could be, uh, uh, arranged and, and, uh, uh set up where the Texas stadium like hole in the roof can be replicated. Do I have that correct?
1: Whoops. Yeah, but it's yeah. it's not anything. It's not it it plays it, they do have a retractable roof and they modeled or or tried to replicate the hole in the roof at Texas Stadium. But I think Burke, I think you'd agree with me it's it's not really the same thing. It's not nearly as iconic an architectural element at AT&T as it was at Texas Stadium.
2: So I'm giving them too much credit.
1: Well, they well, yeah. did try I to think, replicate
2: think, it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think so they wanted the whole but you know what I hear and I don't go out there is that the thing is never open.
1: That's right. They almost never have it open now. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And it's true. and
3: it's and it's never and so I don't know maybe I don't know why they don't open it. Maybe it's just for for comfort reasons or something. Are you also
1: there? And the same you know the same architectural firm built or designed the new Texas Rangers ballpark neck which is right next door. It also has a retractable roof and air conditioning. And that one is rarely open, right? Because the weather in Texas, you know, quite frankly, just doesn't lend itself to that.
3: Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure about the, you know, the answer to that, but um uh, but it's it's just a totally different the stadium has a totally different feel to it. And it's just so huge I mean it's just like the normals it's 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 you know as you approach it it's almost intimidating God and uh, so I I don't know and then and then once you're there apparently you know he was bound and determined to to build a stadium that would somehow accommodate up to 100,000 people I guess they what they seat 80 I think and then there's they've figured out ways to get additional 20,000 people in their standing room only and stuff,
1: but they actually average about 90, actually. That's usually there.
3: It must be the standing room people, but but
1: they can uh, put, you know, they can put over a hundred in there if they want to.
3: But what I think one of the things that if he he were going to do it, one of the things he was smart about was that video screen. Although I think it's, you know, it it just covers up a, a, a real shortcoming to the stadium. And it's my understanding that he he uh, developed that concept based on an experience in Las Vegas, where he went to a Beyonce concert in some huge <laughs> uh, auditorium, and Beyonce was like a little speck down on the down on the stage, and they had screens coming up, larger and larger larger in the beginning and then getting smaller as they come up through each side of the room. And I think that, you know, that gave him the idea that he could actually enhance the experience by adding that big video board, uh, so that people could see the, uh, the game itself. But I mean, it's almost like, you know, why be there? Uh, if you're in, in, and I always find myself kind of gravitating, you're just naturally gravitate to that big screen. And, uh, anyway, I don't, I don't
2: know. No, but. I, yeah. I, well, I, so, so let's wrap up with your, but but both of your individual perspectives on, maybe it's the same. Um, this is, this is a stadium that at its time, uh, was, uh, uh, a, a very important example and, uh, exhibited a certain dynamism, uh, in the NFL at that time, uh, for, I would argue, uh, you know some of the better parts of of, of the modern stadium uh, experience. I mean, what do you think its legacy was? It, it feels to me like it was truly in the early seventies, ahead of its time, uh, oh. on a lot of different fronts.
3: Oh, way ahead of its time. I mean, it's it's it was so impressive. Um, you know, just the the design of it and the hole in the roof. I mean, it just left a uh, left an impression on everybody on there. And, and it was, it was really neat how it was located between in the, in that, the, the confluence of those three highways. And, and, I mean, people were driving by it, they were flying over it all the time. It had incredible visibility and, and it was a access, was was uh, easy access. And it just kind of like set a model in terms of, you know, you, you know that that in terms of in terms of making it as 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 a positive experience for the fan himself and uh and it also i think and it took the the rest of the nfl a while to learn this and and is that it could be a moneymaker and with that, it was unfortunate because because he couldn't you know it, it, it was he used uh, the seed option bonds and things like that. And, and, and it ran way over budget. I mean, 31 million doesn't sound like a lot, but it was, I think he, his budget I think was around 20 initially and it ran over budget. And so what happened is that the, the, uh, the sta- stadium was, you know, all the revenue had to, that was, that was creating had the pretty much all of it, uh, uh, with with uh, with the exception of a of a management contract he had, and some percentage of of concessions or whatever, but it's minor, but all of it went to to paying off debt, and that stayed the case. He had a he had an operating agreement, but but that over time they were able to convert that. It's a long story, but we were able to convert that to a lease, and it opened up the whole profit potential of the stadium, and so by the time Jerry Jones, Jones came around, uh, you know, that thing was just, he, he made it home and it created enormous cash flow. So you had great experience coupled with a uh, large profit, you know, high, high profitability for the owner itself. So it was a very nice comp- co- uh, combination
1: of things. By the way, Tim, I think it comes down to a single word, prototype. It is, it was the prototype of the modern, of the 2022 era stadium that's what it was whether that stadium is in Katy, texas or the new one in buffalo new york or the five billion dollars sofi stadium texas stadium was and is the prototype of that
2: yeah i think i think that's that's uh that puts a cherry on the top of it uh for sure i look and i and i, I um uh, the uh the visuals of the stadium i mean i you know you can tell me i it, it seems like it was kept in really good shape as well too right it was that's not uh, that's not that's not true. Entirely. Oh, really? Is it? OK, I, what was what were what, 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 how would you describe its last years then? Oh, well, we have sto-
1: We have a stories about that in the book where Jerry kind of let it deteriorate. And, you know, he was often at war with the city of Irving about that. They finally got their way because the law was on their side or the contract was on their side. But I don't think he was an A plus steward of the stadium in its final days. Would you agree with that, Burke?
3: Yeah, well, neither party was neither, uh, and he, he had an obligation for preventative maintenance and things, but uh, I think all along the way, uh, not I don't think under dad's uh stewardship, but in or Bum Bright, but beyond that, I think there was there was uh, uh, anyway, they, there was means they took to save money and and cut back way back on preventative maintenance, and then that whole trend. Continued and accelerated as they got closer to uh, the determination of what you know what they were going to do going forward. Were they going to re- rebuild a stadium somewhere else, or uh, were they going to relocate in in, in uh, Dallas or, or or Arlington? And 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 they just and eventually, I think they did. They make the decision to that or announce they're leaving like four years in advance. Uh, right. By- right and so yeah they just, and, you it, know, and so the city yeah. everybody just quit spending money on it at some point that's right and the thing they just let the thing fall apart it was a tragedy i mean it was you know a, tim it, that is
1: actually unfortunately that is actually a national trend because uh my, during my last years in san diego when i was in the la times bureau there san diego stadium which had a couple of names later on jack murphy stadium then qualcomm stadium the padres and the chargers both played there in the end it was just the chargers but when that thing opened in the late 60s it was an architectural jewel and even by you know 20 years later it still was but when the chargers you know the spanos family who owns the chargers now when when they started wanting a new stadium they just let that thing fall apart i mean it, it was it was really awful, how they just let that thing deteriorate. I mean, this thing had been an architectural jewel, it had won all these awards, and it was just such a pleasurable place to go for a baseball or a football game. And the whole point of this psychology is, well, we'll let this thing deteriorate as much as we can so that the voters will, when presented with the choice of a new stadium, they will vote for the new stadium. In in the case of the Chargers, the city of San Diego, the voters said, "No, we don't. No, we're not giving you a new stadium because they had so alienated the fan base and the voters by that time, which is what forced their move to L.A. But but that seems to be a national trend where the outgoing where the owner who wants a new stadium, regardless of the sport, will just kind of let the existing existing stadium fall to pieces, hoping that they'll get a new deal in another stadium.
2: Well, I, I hate to end it on that, uh, but it does uh, it does send a, uh, it does send <laughs> a signal. I know I, and it's hard, it's hard not to be jaundiced about, <clears throat> about the state of, of, of all of that, right. How corporate it's become. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure that, you know, the influx of private equity or, or, or sovereign uh, funds from, from outside the, I mean, there's a lot of different new cash flows and, I, you know, partial ownerships. You know, I don't know. It's just um, it doesn't seem to me like that's going to uh, that kind of tactic is going to um, go away anytime soon. And and that's it. That's a tragedy because at the end of the day, supposedly, it's about the sport and the fans and yeah. the excitement of all that stuff and and all that other stuff that gets pulled away from it. Uh, just right. I think only lessens the uh, lessens the excitement and the attractiveness of what what brings people to sports right. in the first place.
1: But, Tim, thank you so much for having us on. You know, uh, I've been looking at uh, sales figures today of our book on Amazon. It is doing extraordinarily well. And shows such as yours really help us, and we really appreciate it.
2: All righty, then. That was uh, uh, really interesting uh, stuff. I I thought I knew... Uh, enough about uh, Texas Stadium uh, to hold my own in conversation, and clearly that was not the case. My thanks to uh, Messrs. Merkison and Granberry, and uh, there's plenty more where that came from. In the book, which I highly recommend, it is called Hole in the Roof, the Dallas Cowboys, Clint Merkison Jr., and the stadium that changed American sports forever. It is published by the Texas A&M University Press. It is available, as they say now, wherever fine books are found. Uh, And of course, we will have a convenient link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 287, and you will be whisked away to a link that takes you to Amazon for the quickest purchase that we know of to uh, get that book, uh, whether in physical or digital form. Uh, It's all there for you. And a couple of... uh, of pennies or nickels of referral love come our way when you do such. And we appreciate that because that helps keeps our our lights on, he says. Uh, Also the heat, too, as uh, the winter approaches. Uh, You can follow Michael Granberry's writings in the Dallas Morning News. Uh, If you still get the print version, God bless you. Uh, But you can also uh, see him and them, those writings, uh, digitally at dallasnews.com can also follow michael uh on twitter at m as in michael of course granberry g-r-a-n-b-e-r-r-y uh he's also around on facebook uh and uh burke does not have uh, social media handles and uh we are uh, jealous <laughs> for him not doing so however he is um it in, was instrumental in a lot of the content, uh, at this amazing website, that is a, an excellent compliment. If you enjoyed this conversation, you will enjoy this website. It is juniorcom I'll spell it for you. Clint is C-L-I-N-T. Murkison is M-U-R-C-H-I-S-O-N. And junior, J-R, just J-R, clintmerkisonjr.com. Uh, and, uh, some, some great, uh, it's where we found the, uh, uh, the audio uh, narrated by Brad Sham at the beginning of this uh, of this episode. And uh, you'll find other uh, audiovisual stuff. You'll find another link to the book there as well. Uh, and all kinds of great stuff, where they're going to be uh, signing and, and talking about the book, uh, all that kind of great stuff. Um, so indeed, a great story. Uh, and you don't have to be from Dallas or the Metroplex uh, to enjoy it. Uh, let's see. You can follow us Uh, on various digital means. Uh, Check out our website again at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Every stinking episode we've ever done and will do will always be housed there. Of course, you should be following or, or subscribing to us in your favorite podcast player. If you haven't done that already, stop what you're doing and do so so you don't miss a thing going forward. Uh, our uh, social media, uh, for, at least for the time being, you'll find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Our email address is hello at Good Seats Still And our thanks, as always, to the wonderful uh, Dr. Jerry Payne for all of his audio excellence this week. Uh, we appreciate that, as always. And until next week. Uh, God bless. Stay safe. Uh, sh- shop safely, shall we say? And um, uh, we'll uh, take. We'll see you. Take care. Bye bye.